You're listening to 50 Plus a Tip, the show for strippers, ethical sluts, and other open-minded whores. Hi, Tippers. Welcome back to 50 Plus a Tip. I'm your host, Danica. And Riley. And... It's weird. Riley's not sitting beside me on one mic like usual. We've switched it up. Took four seasons, but we finally decided to advance. <laughs> I finally uh, got promoted enough that I got my own mic. And pushed off into the corner of the room. <laughs> yeah, really. I see where this is going. <laughs> You're like out the door. Uh, no, but hopefully this sounds good. Maybe better than usual, but to be determined. Yeah, we're both not producers of music or sound or anything like that so I mean I've never taken a lesson in music production so we're uh we're trying we're struggling we're learning we're googling yeah so hopefully the sound is good we will find out shortly (laughs) (laughs) so this episode kind of is broken into two parts the first one is very sex worker facing. We are going to go over our Work, Money, and Duality book by Raven Bowen. And then the second part, we're going to kind of switch it up and be more customer or client facing because we are going to run through a bunch of strip club etiquette for patrons. So if you have a patron in mind that needs to have a refresher yeah act right or have a refresher on how to fucking behave uh tell them to listen to this episode the halfway mark and uh they have a little crash course on how to behave in the strip clubs yeah maybe we'll put the uh the time in that we start yeah in the little description yeah good let's do that so what uh life updates do you have for us Girl, I have been so lazy. Um, it's been really nice, though. I It was my partner's birthday last weekend, so we just did some stuff to um, celebrate that. We went to uh, a concert for a slow pulp, and then Dan Mangan had a... Uh, That's the concert you went to? Uh, no, but I went to a... Um, what do you call it? There was a screening of his concert documentary, and oh. he was there doing a and a Oh, fun. At the Vancouver International Film Festival. And so, like, my partner was, like, fangirling hard. 100%. I would be, too. I did not get that invite. Uh, I didn't know. Like, he... I had no idea that it was happening until, I think it was, like, 30... No, it was, like, an hour or so before. Um, And Mike was like, oh, yeah, I, like, totally forgot that this was happening. Did you want to go? And I was like, yeah, okay. Not much of a fangirl. He forgot. (laughs) Not true fan. I know. Really. (laughs) That's fun, though. Yeah, it was. What have you been up to? Fuck all, my love. I have been very chill. I've taken a lot of time off work lately and just been seeing friends and family and relaxing. And I feel like you and I have touched on it quite a bit about being burnt out and just pushing ourselves a lot in the summertime. So it was quite nice to just take a step back. I've been reading a bunch of books lately. You and I have talked about having a goal of wanting to read a certain amount of books this year, which... Um, we are close to completion. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, just spending time with loved ones and that, which has been really nice. And kind of taking a breather before the busy November, December comes. Um, and try not to feel too guilty for it because that's something we struggle with. Yes, definitely. 
But um, oh, I've started seeing a counselor. I don't know where we left off with that. I know that I was seeking one out, um, but I started seeing one. It's been really validating. I think um, just talking to someone. Uh, I don't want to like share any details or anything like that. But um, I found them originally on a website who um, volunteers their time to uh, counsel or therapize sex workers. Mm. And then I found them through their um, paid site, I guess, because I didn't fit that allocation. Um, And it's been really nice. I think that it's always really great to surround yourself with friends who are sex workers. But paying someone to take on your emotional labor is also really nice sometimes like because then you don't feel like you're burdening other people or you know they're not going through the same thing as you so you're not kind of adding to their strife but yeah it's been really nice I've only done two sessions but I definitely will uh um continue yeah that's awesome I it's it's really hard to find uh counselors or therapists or psychologists as well um I know I spoke to a friend recently who's looking and they were having a lot of trouble finding some it seemed like a lot of them weren't taking new patients, especially for like psychiatrists, mm. weren't taking new patients or you have to be in a certain area or a certain criteria. So that's awesome that you're able to find um, some kind of help. Yeah. Yeah. On your search. In other news, there was a Vancouver sex worker who spoke out about being denied business bank account um, at a local bank. I believe it was Envision credit union and they spoke about that and it was in the news i know daily hive uh posted about that and then we reposted it and we had a listener write in and kind of respond to the post about it and they said that's not surprising i got denied a business at bank account for our vape shop by credit unions because we didn't meet their in quotes community standards we had to go to one of the majors because they take everyone's money vancini won't even allow cold beer and wine stores to bank with them because they sell liquor Credit unions love to claim they support small businesses, but they have these high and mighty morality clauses where they will deny your service if they don't approve of your business model. Very interesting. interesting. Yeah. Um, but good for this individual that she is, you know, speaking out about it. Her Instagram is at Charlie Beckett. So C-H-A-R-L-E-E-B-E-C-K-E-T-T. And, you know, she's... Um, getting her story out there and speaking on that kind of discrimination. And that's awesome that she's, she's doing that and finding a place for her voice. Um, yes. I wanted to bring that up because this week we are reviewing a book, work, money, and duality. And there is a part in there that is about, you know, like the difficulties with opening banks and stuff. So, um, we'll have to circle back to that, uh, when we do the review. Yeah, this book was really, really good. It's by Dr. Raven Bowen. I think she's a PhD. I call her Dr. Raven Bowen, but we'll give her a doctor. Why not? Yeah. Uh, and it's called Work, Money, and Duality, Trading Sex as a Side Hustle. We really want to get Raven Bowen on the show, hopefully for season five, because she does great work uh for the sex work community she does a lot of research in sex work and our communities and does a really good job of providing safe spaces for sex workers to share their stories and the book like well one this is obviously something i'm very passionate about and very interested in it's that mixture of you know studies 
as well as narratives. And happy to say this is the, I think, first book that Riley's actually read through and took notes on. That's not true. <laughs> is it though? It's close to true, but it's not true. <laughs> but there are a lot of a lot of good takeaways. So we're gonna go through I obviously took a bunch of fucking notes on this one because I found it very fascinating. But I made a point to really point out the parts I thought were applicable mm-hmm. to us and to um to the audience and listeners. So you look like you have something ready to go. I do. There. Yeah, I actually just wanted to say, so um, back on episode 74, we had um, sex worker researcher and ally Tamara O'Doherty? O'Doherty. Okay, yes. That, that one. one. <laughs> um, and a lot of her research for sex work and stuff was cited in this book. So it was really nice to um, read a lot of those extracts. And I know that you also said that um, you had read a lot of the actual articles that were referenced in here. Um, Another thing I would like to say just generally about the book is I really loved how balanced it was between um, extracts from the sex workers who took part in the study, their um, interview quotes, and also the more academic side of it. So I think it's a very accessible book for people who don't necessarily enjoy that style of academic um research and referencing yeah exactly i did read quite a few of the books and the studies that she references in this which was nice to have that kind of background knowledge going Mm -hmm. to this um but yeah first off one of the key things she says i honestly i told you like several times like the first page going into it I enjoyed because she kind of said you know this isn't a book for people who want to like shun sex workers pretty much and I was like yes I'm here for this and this is not a podcast for those who want to shun sex workers yeah this is definitely (laughs) get out of here yeah (laughs) fuck out of here um so she starts the definition of sex work she says sex work is the commercial exchange of sexual products services and performances for money or goods where consenting adults negotiate the details of these transactions These details include pricing, services, duration, location, and other terms necessary for contracting and a meeting of minds. The term sex work was coined in the late 1970s by Carol Lee, a.k.a. Scarlet Harlot, who wanted the labor aspects of the provision of sexual and intimate services to be recognized. I found that very interesting, and I wanted to share that because that's something people are often confused with. You know, what does sex work mean? And I think the way she explained it there was really uh, well done and really inclusive of what I acknowledge sex work definition as. Yeah, I think that the real key part in that was uh, the fact that consenting adults was in it. And I think that, you know, a lot of people when, well, a lot of non-allies when they think of sex work they think of um either you know forced into it via survival sex work or trafficked and so i think it's a really important um point there to include consenting adults in the definition of sex work um i also really liked their uh the definition of survival sex which was in it which reads Um, I refer to forced labor in sex industries as survival sex, where individuals have little opportunity to refuse work and express few options to make their money that they need to stay alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think your definitions are really, really good and Mm -hmm. really important. They also talk about relationship exchange. 
And one quote here from a, a participant named Sierra says, any sex in a relationship is an exchange. You're 55, I'm much younger. And even if you didn't pay me and you were some, seeing someone like me, there'd be money involved. That's why women who look like me at my age are attracted to you. Even in our normal dating lives, we are choosing people who have cultural capital, which I think is something we've expressed many times is that, you know, I know, uh, I believe it was Paris, perhaps. I know there was a interview I had, I think I believe in season one, and we talked about how everyone is prostituting themselves. And that's kind of what they're getting here is there's a, the relationship exchange of you are getting something from someone that you're offering. Is that um, Sahara Rose? Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Good, good one. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> So, yeah, so I, I echo that, that, that mentality as well. And I know that's something you've expressed as well yourself. She also talks about being an educated sex worker. And Cleo, who's a full service and uh, works in the private sector, felt differently. And she says, I think even my being out about it now, there's a lot of race and class privilege that plays into my ability to do that. Like the class privilege and education and being able to sort of talk about things in a certain way. I have very little baggage really. So I think that does give me like a certain, like more freedom to be that fluid. I think we all have to recognize that it is kind of contingent upon those privileges and context. Cleo attributes race and class privilege, particularly education, as elements that make her duality and ability be out possible. Of the 24 individuals who provided information about their educational attainment, 16 held or were pursuing degrees, 3 BAs, and 7 MAs, or Masters of Sciences, and 6 PhDs. Mm -hmm. I actually, I'm looking at your book, and I see that we have the same part highlighted. (laughs) Yeah, about the educated, Um, yeah. Yeah, but I, I wanted to speak on that too, because, you know, one thing that both of us really pride ourselves on is our education and um, the fact that we have or did or are putting ourselves through school using sex work. And I found it was really interesting that this book talks about how that can come from sort of an internal internalized stigma of having to prove that basically you're not, in quotes, just a sex worker and sort of validating yourself through that and I mean I I think we've done a pretty good job about um, always saying that if you're just a sex worker then that's just as valid as you know doing it as part of duality as a side hustle doing it full time but I, I definitely think that I have used my education to validate my own sex work because of internalized stigma. 100% I actually I did I definitely highlight that part um, Wyatt who's another participant decide to stop sharing his credentials on sex work website and in his words sex workers do get this question from clients like is this your full-time job and it depends on my mood whether i get the right answer or not i was trying to i think combat stigma before because of recognition and worth and if you do sex work you're seen culturally low and the lowest of low so i want to say like fuck you i was feeding the stigma because i'm saying i'm better than just sex work i don't need to justify why i'm doing sex work or like qualify that by telling you i've got a degree which is exactly what you're speaking yeah. on that. And I think I think we both do. I, I 100% it's hard to not when people are like, oh, you're just a sex worker, to not be like, uh, no, I have two degrees and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, but there and is that catch-22 of like you saying that is telling them that just just being a sex worker isn't good enough. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. I, yeah, I was going to say um, 
part of it is because you know i felt like it's important to change the idea of what a sex worker is and i think that being having a normal holding a normal job as well having an education as well having a side business as well is all part of changing the the sort of trope of what a sex worker is but i do think that we need to be careful about what that says about people who do choose this choose this as their full-time and only career Mm -hmm. exactly there's also a lot of discussion about sex work being exploitative and you know we hear that all the time and something that you and i have both said to no end is that you know everyone is using their mind their body their whatever for labor Mm. for income like that's literally in a capitalist society that's what people are doing so they also echo that in the book as well they say one anonymous contributor felt that their mainstream academic environment was exploitative in quotes it's very toxic like fucking square time job it's so bad for relationships and bad for people and it's so exploitative much more exploitative than sex work and you never get paid for your work and never have job security which yeah and then they also talked about the transferable skills of sex work and they discuss from one of the contributors named lynn who talks about the extensive skills that are marketable in both sex industry work and sex work. And she says, in quotes, I have an undergraduate degree in blank, which people think is kind of a fluffy degree, but it taught me how to make written arguments. And a lot of what I do at the square job is written arguments. If I'm writing an advert in sex work, which is so segmented by like class, I can play up the ways in which I'm middle class and educated and clients love to hear that you're at university. Yeah, I think there was, they go through a lot of um, examples of transferable skills as well. And one of them that I really liked, and I can't find the exact um, part, but it was saying, you know, doing explicitly uh, prostitution, you know, you have an hour. So you have to greet someone, make them feel comfortable enough that they can get hard and come and then leave all within an hour. And I think that base skill of of making someone feel really comfortable and at ease mm. is transferable in a lot of in a lot of careers. 100%. So I would actually just like to say so obviously for the privacy of the sex workers who um, contributed to the study um, a lot of the private parts have been taken out all of the square jobs have been replaced by um, you know professional professions whatever. So there's going to be times where we're quoting that we that we say omitted or square mm. job or profession professional or whatever and so th- that's just why that's there in case it reads kind of funny right exactly it's telling our fault if it reads funny <laughs> yeah it's not us <laughs> <laughs> yeah they, they do have a lot of examples of a lot of the contributors echoing that idea that there's a lot of transferable skills and um a lot of skills that's required for sex work um one here named mary says that facilitating people's ideas, listening to people, meeting people, and yeah, being like empathizing with people, I think those help in both jobs. Juno, who's also a full-service sex worker, says, as an escort, I learned a lot of skills of not reacting and having a straight face and not laughing. She also says, I went to escorting and I quickly realized I had a lot of confidence to not be walked all over, and my God, my confidence grew. Another one, Joy, says, I'm much more aware of men and their bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Amen to that. So another thing they talk about in the book is that what they say in quotes, whoring is boring. And they 
talk about how they're actually thankful for the other work and school and other things to fill their downtime because, and you know, we've had a lot of guests say this too, that, you know, sex work is like a nine to five job. It's not mm-hmm. as exciting, glamorous and crazy as people uh, say. And they say that the duality brought them freedom and money and a new experience um, from just their, from their work and, and from their previous lives. Mm-hmm. They do a really nice uh, chapter breakdown as well. So most of that was just in the introduction. Um, but chapter one looks at uh, sexiting, which is exiting sex work um, and sort of the explanation of the labor market and reasons why people trade sex. Um, then it goes on to look at a deeper role of duality and how that's done with your um square self your uh sexual sex work self and your personal self um yeah uh, duality and movement uh audience segregation and uh they talk about technology and stuff as well and how that is harmful to people in sex work because of the uh like tracking and everything like that um so it has a really good chapter breakdown as well but they go through a range of subjects which Mm -hmm. i really liked yeah they also talked about uh, the one in the chapter they called "I am the same me in bookings as I am out." They talk about kind of that um, differentiation between work you and personal you. Mm-hmm. They say some contributors do not feel that they make any major adjustments to who they are as they move between sex work and square work. Sage viewed her ability to perform both roles and keep hold of the concept of self as a skill set. I am the same me in bookings as I am out. It's the same role you step into in square jobs. You become a hyper version of yourself and so many lives that you spend when you're in your square job and you do it in the sex work too. It's actually a skill set about being charming, engaging, and disarming, getting people to warm up to you. Other contributors had to mentally prepare for transitioning between roles, implement rituals of movement, and make some adjustments to their performances of self. Um, Helen, for example, believes that she is skilled in mentally compartmentalizing her world and being who is required in each situation due to her upbringing. Viewing oneself from through the eyes of others, Cooley's the looking glass self may be important for appearance management to read the crowd and adjust behaviors, but may cause injury to the oppressed persons. So my question to you is, do you switch or are you the same in sex work and out? I would say that I switch a little bit for sure. I don't think I become a completely different person, but they talk a lot about, you know, I get how, like getting home and having a shower and then putting on specific work clothes or even specific perfume, which is something that both like that um, I do definitely. I use a different perfume for my sex work as I do my, my everyday life. And I think that really helps to um, just step both in and out of it emotionally. How about yourself? Yeah, I, am I different in sex work? I think I'm pretty, hmm, I don't think I make like a a conscious decision to be very different. I'm obviously a little more patient at work mm-hmm. <laughs> believe it or not and I'm a little more um bubbly I guess I've made like an effort to be more so I'm definitely more um I don't have more masculine energy I think when I'm like outside of work if that makes sense 
Um, definitely looks wise, I'm definitely different. I'm always wearing like chill, like streetwear style clothing, obviously. And then you don't wear that in the club. Um, I don't know. Do you think as someone who sees me constantly in and out of work, do you think, uh, do you think my personality that's a lot different or do you think? I don't think it's really, I mean, I didn't get that from the book was that you were a different person. What I got, it was that it was like, yeah. And then my sex work persona wears these certain clothes. So I look more like this. And then I wear my, these certain clothes. So I look like this. And I, I think that you just explained that you did that, you know, like I know that you look different going to work than you do like you don't really wear makeup outside of work and you know neither do I you don't do your hair as much even even if we're doing something nice like we just don't put the same <laughs> but the same type we of put literally in. no effort no looks, unless we're getting paid <laughs> but, but I feel like that's got more to do with the fact that I don't feel resonated with the person that looks like that I look like when I go to work like I don't wear my wig out anywhere I don't think I would want to wear my wig out anywhere just because I feel like that not that it isn't me but I just feel like I don't know there's so much emotional labor around that yeah that it's interesting how we like compartmentalize in that way or like place um like symbolism like almost like your wig represents something to you Mm -hmm. right um they talk about the rituals of movement which you're kind of touching on as well getting into the sex work mode and out of it and they say there's three types of rites of passage have been theorized by van genep in 1960 that apply here a rites of separation which are cues that support role exits such as getting dressed having a shower you know for you putting your wig on and off uh, B, rights of transition, the mental preparations needed for switching cognitive frames and ways of thinking. And C, rights of incorporation that involve a change of environment, such as commuting, which helps to bring closure to a prior role and prepare an individual for the next one. Uh, this uh, rights of incorporation uh, that involve the change of environment, that's something I've spoke on with regards to online sex work. Um, you know, for me, it wasn't for me because I like the idea of I leave my home to go to work. I didn't like the idea of um, work taking place in my home and on my computer and that like that I didn't it didn't allow me enough separation for for me mentally um, yeah so that's they talk about that in the book as well of making space working from home and role transitions um, and says uh, I get home for I, I get home I have a shower and I make sure my bedroom is totally ready it's usually like I have an hour beforehand just to hang out and listen to some cool music and kind of forget my square job and get ready to, you know, escort. And I only use that room when I'm doing sex work. So having those two separate spaces of one is her personal space and one is the sex work. And I, we talked about this a little bit when um, COVID first happened and trying to cam and how almost violating or intrusive it felt because we had to live out of the same space that we gave that emotional energy. And so I think, yeah, I have like notes in here being like, yes, this is exactly why I didn't like camming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My uh, girlfriend, Ashley in season one, who does very, very well on a cam site, she has a room dedicated to Mm -hmm. cam in her house. Um, And that's kind of how she, you know, and she has a wig or whatever, and she's someone else when she's camming in a separate room of her house. So it's not really like her home. It's like that's the office. I know that's that's worked really well for her. 
Another part of the book, they talk about hierarchies, which is something you and I have spoken about in, in extents, um, extent. And they say, a hierarchy was illustrated by Monique Duggan in 2016, depicting types of sex work in a pyramid. The stratification was based on the degree of contact sex workers had with clients and police. Duggan placed cam girls at the top, followed by strippers, sugar babies, dominatrixes, indoor sex workers, and at the bottom stratum, street workers. And then they also talked about how colorism comes into that in the yeah. hierarchy. And they said, more recently, research on race and sex work unavoidably captures the hierarchy at work in the lives of sex workers of color. Odortri, Tamara, who we had on, who was a great guest, describes a hierarchy, though not in those terms, based on the racial inequalities in the off-street sex industry as a reflection of Canadian society more generally. Odortri's research participants described a blonde, white, thin archetype of a sex worker, and those who deviated from those parameters more suffer, may suffer economically, although there are benefits to standing out from the crowd. Mm-hmm. Which is something, you know, we touched on before too, the idea that like the skinny, blonde, white girl is this, for some reason, this idea, the epitome of, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is in the chapter, maybe it'll be good for British girls, and they talk about... Um, Brexit and how what what that might do for the sex worker industry and they brought up a point you know about racism and stuff saying that um, people will hide their xenophobia and racism by only booking British white girls because and you know say things like uh, I chose you because you're not Hungarian and you're not Romanian so I know you're not trafficked Mm-hmm. And I just thought, I mean, this was based in uh, the UK, obviously, um, but I just thought that was kind of interesting how people will find any way to, you know, you can just be like, listen, I I have a type and this is my type, whatever that is, like, mm-hmm. but it's like the trying to justify why you're a ra- like why you're racist or why you're xenophobic. Yeah. By yeah, like drawing every pretending about trafficking to a trafficker, yeah, to being trafficked. Yeah, I found that very interesting too. They talked about um, a whore hypocrisy as well, and they said that the whore stigma is uniquely gendered. For example, uh, Kim Padu, 1999, examined straight black male in quotes beach boys who sell sex to Western white women vacationing in the Caribbean. She states that they were not seen as negatively as their female counterparts. Instead, their work was reviewed as maintaining masculinity and reducing the economic power of female clients. Women who sell sex are constructed as fallen women in need of rescuing by churches, Magdalena projects of yesteryear and exit organizations of today with their underlying premise of saving women from sin. Which is fucking wild. Um, I mean, I think we've all heard heard that to some degree even outside of sex work when you know like the the guy in college fucks all the women and he's you know a player but a woman does that she's a loose slut you know um that that double standard of sexuality between men Mm -hmm. and women but it's it's interesting to see that it's even prominent among uh professional sex workers professional sluts (laughs) like (laughs) it's just crazy they also talked about um more of the horror hypocrisy in that um that that 
that pyramid. And they said, uh, example, the sugar babying is arguably the least stigmatizing because it is the most similar to dating. And in quotes, dirtier workers, such as visible street-based workers and those of color are subjected to more stigma and negative attention from the police. Which is, again, something we've touched on before, how sugar babying, you know, it's, it is prostitution. Like, you know, it is, they are the same things. These are very yeah. gray lines that people are crossing, but they're almost doing it for that way of like, well, I'm not a prostitute, I'm a sugar baby. You know, um, and then, you know, what's the line between a woman who's dating a guy because he, you know, gives her an allowance and, you know, lets her drive the range as opposed to a prostitute? You know, they're all pretty similar, you know, and it's back to that exchange of power. You know, you're with this person because they are giving him the keys to their range room or, or they're letting you go on a shopping spree. What's the difference between leaving, you know, the money on the counter after you fuck? You know, mm-hmm. so I find that hilarious that people love to be like, I'm not... I'm not sex or I just only date rich men. Oh, I'm not a prostitute. I'm just a sugar baby. I think if you if you took out the money from a relationship and you wouldn't stay, you're a sex worker. You whore. <laughs> okay. Hate to break it to you. No, but like, I mean, you're right. Even women who marry rich and are in the same age groups and don't do the explicit time for money or pay per meet that sugar babies do or like monthly allowance like you're you're still it's still an economic proposition for you and for women it always has been yeah and i just think like you know i see these people who are with these guys and they're doing well i just think oh on that year when he does bad and he loses all that money and you know you're sharing a room in his parents house or something how quickly that girl will be gone um but yeah, it is funny how, you know, we're all not that far off from each other, no. but people Some of know. us are just more straight up about it than others. Yeah, some are just lying to everyone and themselves. <laughs> so oh, funny enough, the next one I talked on, the caption was liar, liar. Huh. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> so they talk about the mental toll um, of hiding sex work because that's another um, common theme we see throughout the book is that a lot of these individuals who are practicing duality um where they are sex worker by night you know a square job by day um there is that mental toll that comes on from hiding a part of your life or part of who you identify as even if that's not your full identity and that's something uh i've you know talked about before and they say, in quotes, the secret keeping in the short term proved useful to achieve goals of stigma avoidance, but over the long term, it was damaging to mental health. Contributors rationalized lying as a means to protect themselves and loved ones from the effects of a stigma or to avoid the emotional labor of explaining what they do to people whom they do not wish to invest in getting to know. For example, contributors who hide sex work want to ensure that loved ones are not exposed to the horror stigma. Yes, so there's a quote in here that says, um, says Remy told her parents um, what they do and, and this is not reduced to stress. Like my life has been so much more stressful since I told them. The net amount of stress hasn't gone down. It's just that they're dealing with it now as well. Not me, so it's kind of a selfish thing to do really. The stigma is there and I think it's fair, it's fair enough that they shouldn't have to experience stigma for something they haven't chosen. 
Yeah, and I think that's definitely an interesting way to look at it. I've never really thought of it that way, that it's kind of that transfer of stress or responsibility or or what have you. Um, I've always been very open and honest with my family and friends about what I do for work, uh, mostly because I don't like lying. And something I struggle with is I do understand wanting to hide from the stigma. I do understand that it's easier not to be a front-facing sex worker, but then is it not the same as when you and I go, well, I'm not just a sex worker, I'm a, you know, I'm this, this, this. Yeah. To to be hiding from being front-facing sex worker because you don't want the horror stigma, doesn't that only just play into more of the horror stigma um, and be like, I'm not like them? Um, and is, isn't that just internalizing the horophobia? Yeah. Absolutely. I think so. And I found this part really interesting as well for a couple of reasons. So someone's talking about even their most liberal minded friends cannot be trusted with the fact that she's a sex worker. It says, I have another flatmate who's a guy and I don't want to tell him. He's like one of these guys that considers himself liberal and polyamorous and all the rest of it. And I know that he would just laugh it up. It would be like a capital for him to say, oh, I live with a sex worker. I don't want that to be on any on his lips or anyone's lips. It would end up dominating how I'm thought of. And I that last part I just kind of resonate with that. And I think we you know, we were having a a conversation two days ago saying I'm start like, you know, discussing how we're starting to feel what I'm starting to feel quite one dimensional is because taking on that stigma and you know, advocating for it is the right thing to do in the cases that you can of course but it really does become everything you are at some point yeah a hundred percent like the fact that most of the books I read are about either finance or psychology or sex work you know teaching lap dance workshops being on a sex podcast and then going to work like yeah it Mm -hmm. does a hundred percent feel like your entire identity becomes being a sex worker and being a sex worker advocate. Yeah. Um, but then I guess, like, what's the alternative? Like, I don't know if being out there stripper, a lot of society will only ever see you as that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's really hard for a lot of people to see you as more because that's, that's if it bleeds, it leads, right? Like, that's the juicy stuff people want to talk about. Um, so I'm sure, like, when I come up in people's conversations... You know, that's the leading thing. I was like, you know, she's a sex worker. You know, she's a stripper. Mm. Uh, so. Yeah. I, uh, just about the telling the family, I put a little note in here that, because they talk about who does know and who doesn't know in the book and what people are comfortable saying. And it says, uh, one girl's talking about meeting her boyfriend's family and saying, I don't know. I don't like lying in front of people, you know, speaking about how she has a fake job that she tells people about or whatever. She goes, I don't like lying in front of somebody who knows you know. I'm not about, um, I'm out about it with my partner. And when somebody asks about it, I feel a bit uncomfortable lying. And to be honest, even though my extended family, some of them know what I do, I still lie about it to like avoid that uncomfortable conversation. Like I know when my auntie messages me on Facebook asking me how work is, she doesn't want to know how it's been at the club. Mm. you know and so I tell her about my um, research assistant stuff or the catering stuff that I do on the side but like I just straight up like 
I maybe not lie, but like I just avoid it like the plague. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, I think I feel I think when I first started being a stripper, I just I think I'm just one I've just been very unapologetically myself my whole life. So it didn't even cross my mind to lie about it. If I look back, if I in hindsight, if I had known all the bullshit I'd go through being an out there stripper, I think it's definitely an easier road to walk hiding that Mm -hmm. in hindsight. But then part of me, I think I would resent myself for not doing everything I could because I, I, part of me does believe that if you are in a privileged place, um, you kind of owe it to the community Mm-hmm. to be out front facing and to like do what you can to like make it better for the next generation of sex workers um especially being in a privileged position so even there is a part of me whether it be wrong or right when i see you know especially in our close-knit community you know you know white well-off girls who are in the industry who get to pretend like they're not in the industry and never have it really touch anything in their lives and then they get out of the industry and they carry on there's an idea where if you're not part of the solution you're part of the problem mm-hmm. and I think part of me does struggle with that concept of like you got to benefit financially from being in the industry and never have any of the darkness touch you of the stigma and then you got to wash your hands clean of it and carry on your way and I'm sure throughout your time since you've been in the industry, not you, but like this this person in my mind, you've been in conversations. People have talked shit about strippers and you probably just nodded along because you don't want to like out yourself. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you think that is – Be do you think that you're able to be out because of your place in sex work? Like this book for a lot of people and I think a lot of people in general is – is there they supplement their work with sex work and it is very real um because of like morality causes and stuff um that they will lose that job especially those who work in public sectors like teachers or nurses or anything like that um you know they're not able to be out because they'll lose their job and i think that I mean, I'm def- I'm just asking because, like, I also feel this way. Is that I'm in a position where, like, I can work sex work, and it be all of my income, and I'm doing, you know, reasonably well. I'm I'm making a living, living. I'm paying my rent, um, but I don't know how that will affect me in the future if I try and get a job. Yeah, I know. I I I guess like to me, it's like well, I can't go back. Like, do you mean like yeah. I am? fully committed to it because it's the only way to be in yeah. my life yeah so I may as well go full throttle and fully fight for this and if people don't want to hire me for things and like I handle that head on yeah but I've always been that way as a person like if I made a conscious decision to enter into sex work then I made that decision to take on all the bullshit that comes with sex work mm-hmm. too um but I'm just like a very headstrong person like yeah. that um it, and then yeah that definitely wasn't my reality I was very much a I'll get in, I'll get out type thing. Yeah. And to me, it's just like the only way things are going to change is that there's more people that get into sex work and then say like, 
yeah, I'm an out and proud sex worker and like I'm going to go through school and I'm going to push to get higher places and going to, you know, fight for these sex workers' rights. And I'm, if you are in a place of privilege, I think you kind of owe that to the community. I don't know. It is, it is as you said before, ooh, fireworks. <laughs> for fuck's sakes. <laughs> um, you know, it is, it is a double-edged sword for sure. Because on one hand, you're really in it for life if you decide to be sort of out and proud and, you know, talk about it and advocate for it and have to, well, I say have to, but, you know, like, you don't stand by and, like, watch people stigmatize the industry that you're in thinking that you're not in that industry um but it does really have a lot of real life ramifications so yeah yeah i think there's that um sticker or whatever from jack the stripper and she said no one will ever let let you forget that you're a stripper but why would you want to Mm -hmm. and i guess like the way i view it is like the good I think I will do within the community is worth the shit I'll have to take Mm -hmm. if that makes sense yeah I guess like that's the only way we'll see change right is more people that are in power positions that are in power jobs that are going through university are coming out Mm -hmm. like that's the only way you're gonna see change right for sure Um, there needs to be precedent set um, but no one ever making changes the first few that do it it's always the hardest for right and that gets easier for the next generations um, and I think I just made that decision a long time ago that I was just going to be at the front of yeah. that fucking war, I guess, <laughs> as dramatic as that sounds. Yeah. And you know, I, I really, I think that is one good thing that has come from OnlyFans mm. is because people who post on OnlyFans, especially those who do uh, full frontal, like face forward porn, like you're, you're out like everything on the internet that's chilling there forever and so you know i do hope that that is pushed you know more people to be like everybody's a sex worker or so many people are a sex worker yeah so it's just so crazy to me that people even give a fuck about nude pictures like y'all got skin y'all have genitals i'm not like, talking about like fuck? nude pictures i'm talking about like them but like those porn people, and everything like, y'all themselves with yeah, like but who cares y'all doing it in your bedroom secretly anyways right like <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what i mean like it's so crazy when people even like think twice on those things like who cares you're all fisting your assholes at home with your partner so i don't think what? people are doing that not i everybody. think some people are i think definitely <laughs> you've let us in on a little secret (laughs) (laughs) and that's it for this episode (laughs) moving on Uh. (laughs) so going back to the book um another thing they talk about here is how again all work is exploitative and they and they bring that they bring that point home again and sierra discusses her experiences on a zero hours contract alongside sex work in quotes, they are both shitty jobs. It doesn't matter whether you exploit your body or whether you exploit your smiling face. Both are exactly the same because I am not free. They are just types of exploitation, you know, like being on a zero hours contract. They're relying on me being smiley and pleasant and listening to shit from people, which is exactly the same like the other job in sex work. Which, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yes, so they they talk a little bit about, um, you know, Mark's, Marxism and uh, it says here Marx explains that within the capitalist 
political economy, workers become the worst kind of commodity and are detached in a few key ways from products, productions themselves, and finally other workers because their labor and its fruits do not belong to them, but to the capitalists who undervalue wages and extract maximum profits for their work. And I was kind of thinking about it. So obviously the whole idea is that like, if you work for a company, you use your typically company or even a lot of people who are self-employed, you create a product that is then sold and you're paid very little of that product. So you don't actually own that product, even though you made it, Mm -hmm. the people above you do. Um, And I kind of love the fact that sex work isn't really that. Mm-hmm. Like even tradespeople still build something that someone else sells, and sex workers don't. Like if you if you work for yourself, it's just like you and your body, and then that person can't turn around and sell nothing. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of liked that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. They also touched on that sex workers can be feminists and often are. And it's something I've said before. You know what's more of a feminist and doing whatever the fuck you want with your body, regardless of what society or the patriarchy tells you. Um, and that believing that you should have equal rights to, um, your male counterparts. So they said, how are we going to rescue these contributors who make more money than most and possess more education than the average UK worker. The facade that sex workers are all victims or that they need specific feminist lobby groups are ill-formed or ill-formed policies to save them from themselves falls apart in light of who trades sex work today. Some sex workers are already working on issues that affect their well-being and clearly state that we are not waiting to be invited into the feminist movement. We have always been here. So that expert is actually from uh, Revolting Prostitutes. Yes. And I tweeted it. If you follow us on Twitter, you would have seen that. Yeah, <laughs> Revolting Prostitutes is also a great book. It's about prostitution in Canada and legal, yes. um, the legality surrounding sex work in Canada. And I highly recommend you all picking up a copy and reading it. I believe we're going to read it and probably review it in season five. Mm-hmm. So you guys can get ahead of the, ahead of the game and... And read it before then. So I loved this conversation that this book had about sex workers as prostitutes. Uh, as prostitutes. Sex workers <laughs> as prostitutes. Uh, sex workers as victims. Uh, and it says, if sex workers were really victims of poverty, exploitation, or circumstances, it would be illegal to stigmatize them and unethical to fire them from their square jobs that they hold because this would compromise their economic security and force them into dangerous ways of working in mainstream and informal economies. And so I, you know, a lot of our, the laws that are around, um, sex work, I think it's, uh, bills 72, 63, 69. Let's go 69. That's fine. Um, but you know, it's always like, uh, you know, stop trafficking is the whole like big thing of Your like PCPA exactly. Law. Yeah, but yet we're so stigmatized, and that's actually like plays into the um, discussion that we were have about uh, having about the bank. Is that um, you know you would never stop a victim from opening a bank account 
it says here, even so preventing any victim from opening an account in their own name as a pathway to independence is counterproductive. Um, it is also like, and then they talk about sort of the moral um, morality of sex work money. Um, it says it is also hypocritical given that banks have no problem storing and investing monies from corporations that overprice goods and services while underpay, underpaying workers and evading taxes. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, that was a really good part. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of coming to the end there, one of the chapter seven, it says, Don't judge us as different from you. Um, and it says, you know, we can begin first by acknowledging that for the vast majority, sex work is work. And then a quote here saying, sex work is just as valid and valued at work as any other square work that people do. And it is varied and diverse as square work, different forms of square work. And basically we're no different. You know, I think that's what I would want to convey. Like, you know, don't judge, judge us as different from you. Which is, I think when... For, long, for like I think most of like season two and three when I'd have guests on and I'd ask them, you know, if you had the world's attention for 30 seconds, what would you say? You know, there was a real running running theme of people being like, hey, we're just like you or sex workers are people and sex work is work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's – it's crazy that it needs to be compete, like repeatedly said, but it seems people really struggle with it. So they had a closing – part here unless you want to add anything before I get to it yeah I'm actually just trying to find my closing part here but it might be the same as yours so the ending part here that I liked is when they talked about organizations that were supposed to help sex workers and it says it is also time to call out representations that are not driven or by or heavily shaped by active sex workers. There are few marginalized populations in our society that we have resources, that have resources provided to charities and state services for their support and care that do not have members of the respective populations employed or in governance. We would question a woman's organization that had no woman involved or a group serving people with accessibility issues that only employed able-bodied individuals. We would take issue with misrepresentation in these cases. We should require the same for those who design policies or provide services to sex workers. Yeah. I like that a lot. And it's very true. The, uh, The last part here, actually, it's the last... Uh, two sentences is what I highlighted with little hearts around it said and this is a note from Raven Bowen on the closing uh, postscript here in my professional role I commit to co-creating safety with you and all sex workers and making space for your populations to speak out and do for yourselves thankfully there are many who share this aim and who choose to meet you in the transcendent field beyond right doing and wrongdoing I actually messaged Tamara after I did the book. I read the book and I messaged her and I said, Hey, I just read, uh, work money and duality and love to see your name in there. And I just want to thank you for everything you're doing for the community. Now I've said this to her, I don't know, many, many times over the years, but I want to thank her again because, um, it makes you feel good. I think coming to the end of that book and 
seeing that people that actually aren't sex workers themselves um, speaking up for and using their platforms um, to help the community. And um, yeah, I just reached out to her and said, you know, thanks for all your work. And I, yeah, it, uh, you know, touched me <laughs> to just be reminded that there's people outside the community that um, are doing good and care. Yeah. Um, so I think when you're a marginalized group, it can feel like it's just you and your community against the world a lot. Definitely. So that was really nice. So I highly, highly recommend, I mean, we pretty much just read the whole fucking thing to you anyways, but I highly recommend you guys get that book, uh, Work, Money, and Duality by Raven Bowen, and, and take a read through it. Um, yeah. Yeah, they did a really lovely job in that book, I think. Yes, and as I said before, I think it did a really good job of uh, balancing both sort of the academic and I the more research-based stuff and the um, experts from other sex workers. And it's just kind of nice to read through them. Um, you know, we were talking about before getting from your work persona to your um, regular persona, vice versa. And it was just nice reading things and being like, oh yeah, I do that too, or I've had similar experiences or... Yeah, it was just, uh, it was a good, it was a great book. And it wasn't too long. I think both of us finished it in two and three days. Is, three days. Is. <laughs> Close enough. Daisies. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was really good. Okay, so we're kind of switching gears at this point in the episode. And we, that book obviously is very um, work worker facing, sex work facing. And we're going to kind of take a pivot and do more of a client facing portion of the episode and you may want to instruct your clients to listen to this part of the episode so we had a listener question come in and it says i have a suggestion for a podcast strip club etiquette i have not listed all your podcasts yet so maybe you have already covered this topic but i think it bears repeating perhaps annually and not only etiquette for customers who come in, but also for dancers. Should they just plop down at the table or worse in your lap? Because I am such an infrequent visitor to strip clubs, I really don't know how to behave in a positive manner. So I act kind of shy. I must give off some kind of vibe because I'm usually left alone, even when I tip a dancer on stage. Usually they go back to sitting with, I guess, a regular or with other dancers and play with their phone. Regulars I understand because they, have the li- they are the lifeblood of the dancer. Maybe I just visit the wrong sort of clubs. Go figure. So, that is a great idea for an episode. Mm -hmm. So, we are going to go over some strip club etiquette for patrons of strip clubs. And Riley and I are going to go over a few of our own. And then I'm going to read through some from an Instagram called Pretty Boy Girl. And then I'm going to read through a few from another Instagram called The Glowy Hustle. And then I'm going to read the ones that came in from the Instagram story I posted. You guys had a lot to say about how patrons should behave in strip clubs and how they should not behave (laughs) in strip clubs. So we're going to share your responses as well. So starting with you, Riley. Hello. What are some of the top of your list of how a strip club patron should behave? I took to Reddit and I asked the strippers of Reddit what they thought as well. Um, so this was the, the top comment had some really good ones. So one was shower and brush teeth before you come. Yes. So I think that a lot of, you know, in just common courtesy, we're getting all like gorgeously high hygiened up for you. 
Like, just brush your teeth, man. That's literally no shit. My first, yeah. my first one I wrote down was good personal hygiene. Yeah. Um, drinks aren't tips. Don't pressure us to drink. Mm-hmm. As uh, someone who is sober, especially at work, like, it is so annoying. Like, and don't make it obvious that I'm not drinking. Like, I, that I don't drink. Like, that's the worst, too. It's, like, not only, like, pushing drinks, but then yeah. now you're making it obvious to everyone else around you that I'm sober. Like, Yeah. It just irritates me too because really in a strip club a a drink is ten bucks. Yeah. Just give the girl the ten bucks. Yeah, hundred percent. Like what? Yeah, it just like baffles me that no, because then you feel like maybe she'll sit with you a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that um, if you say you in quotes know the owner, it makes you sound douchey as fuck and manipulative manipulative and yes. like exploitative like you're yes. going like you owe me now or you better behave because I'll, I'll rat on you exactly Ugh, don't do it uh obviously don't trash talk the other girls like don't and that's something that we've talked about as well is the compliments that are insulting to everyone else exactly that's exactly it um don't mention other girls uh government names mm-hmm. uh don't touch us without without us telling you it's okay mm-hmm um don't show up just to spend no money slash if you're broke mm-hmm. uh don't ask us to see you outside the club and don't ask us personal questions yeah uh another one is always tip a girl if she sits and talks with you or get a dance i hate it when someone tells me that like me to sit down but get offended or awkward when it comes to money it's demeaning to have us have our time wasted definitely i knew i was gonna have a lot from all the other sources so my top three were good personal hygiene Mm -hmm. uh don't ask for real names or government names as you called it and a big thing i think people everyone should take away from even like going out to a regular club or the bar and hitting on people offer contact information or your phone number don't ask for theirs because then they're they can still reject you in a safe space especially as a woman like i if a guy has to give ask for my number i'm gonna have to give it either give you a fake one and hope you don't call it in front of me or if i say no you're gonna get aggressive that way if you offered me your number even if i'm not interested i can say oh yes you can and then you give it to me and then i can delete it out of my phone later or i don't have to call you the next Mm -hmm. day um i think it's just it's it puts a lot less pressure on that person and it makes the situation a lot less uncomfortable if they're not interested so i think it's the best way to go about it in any situation but especially in a strip club especially as dancers were very adamant about our safety and our privacy so giving us your number would allow us to use our burner phones to call you later um so yeah i think that's a huge thing is offering your number rather than asking for theirs Mm -hmm. this might be a little bit old school but one thing that i really liked from my customers um or clients was when they gave me a business card Mm -hmm. because then again you're avoiding the uh, I, I find that a lot of people like, well, now, now text me so I have your number. Mm-hmm. And, it, and you know, some clubs don't like it when you get your phone out and take people's numbers. Yeah. So I find that like, I mean, obviously there's a, a bit of personal information on business cards. So it's up to the comfort of, you know, a stripper knowing who you are or a girl at work knowing who you are, your company is, whatever. But I really like the route of 
the business card, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that can go for, honestly, that's a, maybe a good tip for dancers as well, is if people ask for your number, just give them, have business cards made. Yeah. Yeah. So going into the post from at pretty boy girl, how to behave at the strip club, it says, and number one, strip clubs are places of luxury. If you can't afford to spend at least $200, you shouldn't be going to the club. Strippers accept a high degree of stigma and societal exclusion. And in return, we expect to get paid the big bucks. Number two, do not haggle with strippers. Most clubs have set dance prices that are not decided by the dancers, and even if your stripper sets their prices, those are their rates for services, and it is disrespectful to haggle. Three, leave after you spent your money. We are not dancing for free. Most clubs do not pay us an hourly wage, so we have to earn every dollar we get either by selling dances or getting tipped from stage dances. It is rude to sit around and enjoy a free show. Four, do not ask us out. Do not ask us where we are going to do later. We are working, and like most workers, when they are cornered on the job, we are unable to leave. We are obligated to treat you with hospitality, and or we will face penalties, so don't pressure us into going on a date. Five, don't ask what our real names are. Stripper names protect our identities, not only from stalkers and other people who might wish to harm us. They also protect our families, especially our children in custody disputes. You are not entitled to knowing our personal information. Six, Ask what the rules are for lap dances. It will often vary from stripper to stripper and asking helps you to respect your boundaries, our boundaries. You might even be positively surprised by what people are comfortable with, but you won't know unless you practice consent by asking. Seven, tip your dancer at least 20% of the dance price. Tips go directly into our pockets, but dances are often split with the club. Tips are the backbone of our wages. It is incredibly rude not to tip. It's like you're going out to eat and not tipping your waiter. Again, most strippers do not get paid hourly, so the money you hand us is our only wage. Eight, if you're watching the stage, try to tip each dancer a minimum of $5. It's the equivalent of a cup of coffee, but it demonstrates respect for the performances. Nine, shower, clean up before coming into the club. Brush your teeth. Make sure you smell clean. We have to put it up in your personal space, and there's nothing worse than dancing on someone who smells like garlic knots. 10. Do not record us. Stripping is a very stigmatized industry, and many of us will face violence if we are outed. 11. If you are throwing a party at the club, make sure you educate your friends on a proper strip club etiquette. Keep your homies in check and bring extra cash if you know your friend is too broke to be there. 12. Tip black strippers. Too often I see super dope black strippers get completely ignored on stage. Check your internal bigotry and make sure you're tipping black dancers as much as the other dancers. 13. No means no. Don't try to push dancers into anything they're not comfortable with doing voluntarily. That's super predatory and gross. Don't be a predator. 14. To celebrities, rich people who rent out the clubs for events, movies, etc. Can you just not? The only people benefit from this are the building owners and managers. The, That's you hustlers. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Strippers lose their ability to work. They aren't paid anything for these losses, and being unable to work can har- have dire consequences. Many strippers live paycheck to paycheck and cannot afford to miss work. 15. Ladies, do not act like this is your girls gone wild moment. Do not try to climb up on stage and dance. Do not start stripping with us. Do not try to rub a single dollar bill on your vagina. Bring money and spend all of it. Don't act broke. Couples do not fight in the club. Take your baggage elsewhere. Don't try to low-key get freak in the dance booth. We will notice and we will judge you. 100%. The Glowy Hustle also had a post called Strip Club Etiquette 101 for customers. And a lot of these were the same as ones we said. Number one, tip your dancer, especially if you enjoyed your time with her. Two, don't touch unless she tells you or guides you or instructs you to. Three, be respectful of her personal boundaries. No means no. 
for understand that it's our job and that we can't work for free. We actually pay to work, so our time is money. Five, don't go to the tip the rail empty-handed. Tip $5 is the minimum. Six, stop asking for extras or to meet after work. Enjoy the experience she's providing at the moment. Seven, be a gentleman and pay her upfront for her services. Eight, don't assume you can touch her more because you are a woman. Again, boundaries. Nine, be nice and respectful to dancers and staff. It will get you a lot more attention. 10, follow the club rules and don't push her to break them. 11, avoid coming with people that don't enjoy being in our establishment. 12, please never ever take pictures of entertainers in the club, especially without their consent. 13, don't shame her for working in the very establishment that you are spending in. 14, stop telling her she's too pretty to work here. It's not really a compliment in our eyes. 15, don't ask for discounted or free services. And 16, keep your hygiene in check. Wash your hands, eat a mint, wear deodorant, avoid wearing stinky or sweaty clothing if you can. And then the listener responses. So one first long one here says, this is what I tell my friends if they're thinking of going to the strip clubs as customers. If you run out of money or you're waiting on another dancer, say so within 30 seconds. No need to be embarrassed. Just say, listen, I don't want to waste your time. So just letting you know, I'm waiting on blank. We're not offended. If we're, if we were, we'd be in the wrong job. Ideally, if you're not out of money, get the fuck out. But of course, there are exceptions. Example, your friend is still spending. Also, this is relevant to me because most of my friends who go to strip clubs look young slash alternative or are female. A few times they've complained about being ignored. So obviously, dancers will approach a middle-aged man in a suit on his own or a bunch of drunk tradies or tradies before you. Perhaps not give you much attention or at all if it's busy. It's not personal, it's business. Men think with their dicks, they usually spend more. If you're keen for a lappy, just approach the dancer who catches your eye and ask, or tip her on stage. Yeah, I think those are really good. I uh, I don't really know how... Like, there's not a lot of people that I would avoid in the uh, strip club, to be honest. Like, not approach. Um... I, de- I definitely don't go up to women as much. And I think that's because they do tend to have their girls gone wild moment Ugh. or stuff like that. But I've also had really great clients who are women. So. And okay. So again, with the responses to the listeners on the Instagram, they were as follows. Don't take up space if you're not paying the girls. Do tell a girl if she isn't your type. She will often find another girl that you'll be into. Please don't nut on yourself during a dance. Absolutely no basketball or Adidas pants. Laugh my ass off. No. Don't be a racist. Don't say you're not having a dancer tipping and still expect to sit and chat for free. Do be respectful to all the dancers and not just the ones you think are sexy. Tip when you're by the stage. Ask if you can touch each dancer individually. Don't assume it's okay. Be prepared to spend money and tip when you come in. Don't ask for a discount. Tip at the rail or the stage. Leave if you have no intention of tipping. Ask to touch before doing so. Don't waste the dancer's time. If you want to talk, please pay them. Don't chat endlessly if you have no intention to get a dance or tip. Don't suck on tits without consent. It happens more often than not. Respect dancers' boundaries. If you don't like them, find another dancer. Don't beg and plead for a discount after being told no. Respect your dancer. Don't ever argue with your dancer about her boundaries. Do tip dancers for their time and emotional labor. Don't come into the club only to ask, what are you doing later? Don't put dollar bills on your bare vagina butthole. Don't put vaginas on their bare vagina butthole. Money is dirty in <laughs> half <What>? areas. <laughs> and they have, the money is dirty and those areas are sensitive. Don't fucking lick me. Do not flash your cash roll around the club if you aren't dropping it on the stage or VIP. Tacky as fuck. 
If you're drinking beer, bring some fucking breath syrups, mints. Yeasty breath is nasty in a lap dance. Don't hog a dancer's stage set by tipping one by one super slow. Biggest pet peeve. Do not set your drinks and belongings on the damn stage. Don't ask her for her real name. If she declines, don't ask again. Don't patronize dancers when they're trying to hustle you. I hate that. What the fuck did you expect? Expect free, don't expect free emotional labor and trauma dump on us. Don't sit with your feet out in front of you. I will always follow them. Do indulge more dances. Don't bargain when a girl gives you her dance break. She'll do it if she wants to. Don't ask my real name. Don't be cheap. Don't say you're just there because of your friend. Don't put your mouth on me, ever. Don't expect to get laid or ask if I'm single like that changes anything. Don't try to finger me. Do tip every dancer at least a couple dollars if they come up to you. Do be respectful of dancers' privacy and boundaries. Do spend lots of money. Don't make shit weird. Don't ask what happens in the VIP room. Don't be rude if someone isn't your type. Don't ask the strippers to get the bartender or server unless that comes with a big old tip. If you're going to be hooting and hollering at girls on stage, please be throwing money too. Do not slap our asses when we walk by. Remember you're in a strip club, not a bar with a pole. You're in our place of work. Girls, stop behaving like trash. You are not allowed to more because we're both women. Don't make me feel like the bad guy for kicking you out after you broke my rules. Do tip the stage dancer if you sit in the front row. Do buy lap dances and tip the floor girls for their time. Don't come in and use excuse, I have a girlfriend when someone asks you to buy a dance. You're already at the club and watching the stage girls get fully naked so that shit does not fly. Don't take up a seat in the per row if you're not going to tip every dancer on stage. Make sure your hygiene is up to standard, especially if you're wanting to get in VIP dances. Don't ask the waitress to pick the hottest girl and send her over. Do your own dirty work. Don't try to sweep your credit card between her butt cheeks. What? <laughs> Don't just go to suck up on a titty in VIP. Ask. Don't set the stage if you're not tipping. Always ask before touching. And don't ask an answer anything you wouldn't ask your accountant. Don't get angry if you aren't getting attention. Money talks and we listen. Tip, 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 <laughs> zone wrote. Don't lean over and onto the stage area. Don't be gross. Be polite. Don't speak down to strippers because they're naked. Ask if something is okay if it, or accepted, whatever the answer is. Don't negotiate. Don't tell anyone how someone's heels compares to your dick size if you have one. If you don't like fighting security, don't touch anyone without permission. Share what you like. You get tailored dances that way. Show up freshly showered and wear clean clothes. No one wants to dance in work sweat. Don't ask female patrons if they're there because they're a lesbian or, a bigger, or suggest a threesome. Keep your mouth off me for fuck's sakes. Don't ask dancers, why do you do this? Why does anyone go to work for money? Lastly, don't tell them they're too good for their job. Ugh, what a good one to end on. Um, <laughs> I did want to add one actually that I just thought of. Yes, let's hear it. Through those is if your friend buys you a dance, <sighs> do not say no. Or if a dance really makes you uncomfortable, at least tip the dancer. A lot of the time we're in a friend has called us over or bought us over to you, we have walked away from other sales. So not only do we not have this dance with you, but we've also lost potentially another dance. Yeah. Um, and it's just really fucking awkward to stand there while you and your friend go backwards about how he wants to buy you a dance. And, and you're rejecting you don't a free want, dance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, usually what I say is, hey, you know what? You don't have to let me dance. Just let me have the money. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, and also... Your friend wants to pay me. Like, if you off. were the person who tried to buy your friend a dance... Just then, hand the dancer. Then give the money to us anyway, or go take the dance yourself. Yeah, just give the dance, give the money to the girl. If yeah. your friend's a loser and doesn't want the free dance, just still give the money to the girl. Because yeah. like, like you said, you've now pulled us away from 
another sale and now you're making it awkward making us stand there yeah. while you guys fight over who doesn't want to see us naked like it's just fucking weird just give us the fucking money fuck off you're and get better friends yeah <laughs> Okay, do you have anything else to add before we close up this week's episode? I don't think so. That was a lot of talking. It was <laughs> chit-chatting away. We covered a lot of ground. And I really think you all should get the book. Once again, Work, Money, and Duality, Trading Sex as a Side Hustle by Raven Bowen. It's a really, really good read. And if you guys have clients you think need a kick in the ass or a reminder of how to fucking behave you can send them this episode and tell them to listen at the midway mark yeah and we'll yell at them for you so (laughs) don't make things weird don't be fucking weird don't be weird don't be fucking weird it's weird it's so weird (laughs) and with that (laughs) so next week we have chris and parker on of the dancers resource and she is the creator of a really fabulous app that you guys should all download. So tune in next week to listen to Carissa Parker talk about her experience as a sex worker and her amazing app. And with that, Riley, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram at underscore Riley Divine. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at 50plusatip or email at 50plusatip at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful week. And happy whoring. Bye. Goodbye.